Podglomerate Original. Thursday, December 6th, 1973. There's never been anything as dramatic before or since. Freddie Prinze goes on The Tonight Show and cars off. Is that a great young comedian? You know, this is a hard commodity to find in this business, all right? Young guys who um, can come out in front of an audience and uh, not have uh, a great deal of exposure and try to find people accept what they do. And this gentleman, his name is Freddie Prince, he's just 19 years old and graduated about six months ago from the uh, High School of Performing Arts in New York. And he works in New York at the Improvisation in a place called Catch a Rising Star. And this is his first appearance on The Tonight Show. So make him feel welcome. You sound like you're in a good mood. Would you welcome Freddie Prince? Yeah. Ready? Kills, whatever the word for it, the thing does great, great, great. Um, Sammy Davis Jr. is on the panel. Now, usually when you did the Tonight Show, you did your set, said thank you. Maybe Carson would give you an okay sign, which meant you did good, and then you would go back behind the curtain and then you'd Mm -hmm. do another set in a couple months or something, or three months. But if Carson thought you were great, he would bring you over to the couch as sort of like his endorsement as the kingmaker or the king who could make the new prince. I yeah. don't know what the analogy. <laughs> I'm doing bad with these metaphors. So Yeah, Admiral who christened a captain. Yeah. So he brings over Freddie Prince. Freddie's stunned. Sits him down and like, that, that was unbelievable. You're, you're going to do fine, really. A lot of people have started on this show. And you can always sense when there's, there's something there that the audience likes him right away. Yeah. they got to like you. You can do it. A lot of guys come out and do comedy and they say, oh, I don't like him. He's funny, but we don't like him. You got you got that nice empathy with the audience. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you here. Comes back. There's he's still gushing over Freddie Prince. They talk to him some more. Sammy Davis talking to him some more. They cut to another commercial. So now now it's had two segments. Come back another segment <laughs> with Freddie Prince. At the end of which they say, our other our last guest tonight will not be on, so he basically bumped a guest. That guest's name was Irma Bomback, and then talked to him one more time as they as they ended the show. It was like watching a dream. It was like watching a dream, watching him happen. By the next day, Freddie Prinze had a sitcom deal, was a millionaire, had bookings all over the country, and... It's insane. It was insane. It was that fast. Like, there's never been as dramatic a moment of, like, nobody knows you. Now you are the next big thing. Yeah. That was the power of Johnny Carson. And when he said these words. Oh, you know, there's no greater thrill for me personally to have somebody come out here who's, who's unknown and stand up in front of an audience and absolutely wipe them out the first appearance uh, coast to coast. That's great. And so the great comedy migration was on because now a very clear path to a stand-up's fame and fortune ran right through NBC's Studio One in Burbank, and comics from all over the country converged on Los Angeles to work at the Comedy Store, which had just opened a year earlier, and then later the Improv and the Laugh Factory and a number of clubs here in Los Angeles. I believe Carson saying those words was the earthquake moment that began what became the comedy boom.
Welcome to the History of Stand-Up, the show where comedian and professor Wayne Fetterman teaches us all, as the title implies, about the history of stand-up. I'm your fellow student, Andrew Steven. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to the first two episodes of the series, I really suggest you check them out. They're going to inform a lot about what we're going to talk about today, so... So stick around, and I hope you enjoy the history of stand-up. So we sort of left off last week in the mid-60s, when the first comedy clubs began operating in New York City and eventually Los Angeles. This model, an evening of just comedians, would transform both how stand-up comedians developed and got discovered. This is exciting. This is exciting. <laughs> now we're getting we're getting into you know modern comedy. And before we talk more about Freddie Prince's performance on The Tonight Show, let's take a quick look at how The Tonight Show came to be. Carson, by 1973, had already been hosting The Tonight Show for 11 years. And he followed in the footsteps of two other comedians. And I briefly want to talk about a comedian named Jerry Lester, who was, remember we were talking about the presentation houses. Yeah, the the vaudeville showrooms that turned into movie theaters that also had live comedy before. Yeah, He had a show called Broadway Open House, which was the first late night popular television show on NBC, starting in, I believe, 1950. Who knows? What am I going to do, get nervous at this point? Here is the fellow who charges a show. And Jerry Lester is his name. Just call me Beanbag. I didn't see a lot of um, variety television outside of Ed Sullivan, of course. That's the voice of George Carlin. And this is from an interview he did with the American Television Academy. Nobody mentions this when they talk about The Tonight Show and late night television and where it got its start. Everybody mentions Steve Allen, which is the proper place to begin the uh, genealogy of The Tonight Show itself. But a lot of them leave out Broadway Open House with Jerry Lester. Funny. That one really got my attention. Because that was mixed, planned and unplanned, slapstick and verbal. And... Um, I, I never missed Broadway Open House. So that goes off the air, and then they start a version of, they have the Today Show, which is very popular on NBC. Never heard of it. Right? It's a morning show. They're like, hey, how about at the end of the programming day, we have the Tonight Show did the at 11.30. Yes, a guy named Pat Weaver. Yes, he did. <laughs> good, very good. You're learning. I'm You're learning. learning. <laughs> that, that will be on the test, okay. by the way. I'll take um, it down. Tonight. Starring Steve Allen. They start the Tonight Show with a comedian. He he had a great radio show out here in Los Angeles, uh, but they did it in New York. His name's Steve Allen. And Steve Allen sort of helped create what we think of as the modern talk show. In case you're just joining us, this is Tonight, and uh, I can't think of too much to tell you about it, except I want to give you the bad news first. This program is going to go on forever. The modern talk show or the modern late night talk show? The modern late night talk show. But his show was a little more of a comedy variety show. So Steve Allen is hosting The Tonight Show when... He starts needing a guest host. So this guy, Jack Parr, guest hosts The Steve Allen Tonight Show on Monday and Tuesday and does a great job. Steve Allen has two shows, a primetime show on Sunday and The Tonight Show. Eventually, Steve Allen's like, let me just concentrate on The Sunday Show. Jack Parr takes over The Tonight Show. There's a couple other little hosts in between during the transition. So Jack Parr has now, so now this is like 50, 1957. Parr takes over The Tonight Show. He's on there for four years and has 
a great run, but is a very emotionally volatile guy. Gets into an argument with NBC, quits, walks off the show. It is NBC's hope that Jack Parr will reconsider his action and return to the program. But I have, I'm holding in my hand his book called My Saber is Bent. And one of the things he talks about is how he loved discovering discoveries in the dark, like presenting Shelley Berman and Nichols and May and Bob Newhart. And yeah, these were like those next generation of stand-up comedians who were putting out comedy records. Yeah. Uh, we spoke about them last week, and and Parr was the one who helped, uh, who was instrumental in bringing Dick Gregory's career to the mainstream. 100%. So The Tonight Show started to become a place where young comedians would be seen, and then so finally Parr quits, and then The Tonight Show's like brings in Johnny Carson, October 1962. In 1962, October, I think October the 1st, I took over The Tonight Show. This is a clip of Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show in 1986. And when Jack Parr was on television, he was without a doubt one of the most colorful, most influential, and certainly one of the more controversial people. He was fascinating to watch Jack Parr. So Johnny Carson takes over for Jack Parr. And he's out of Studio 6B, where they still do The Tonight Show today. And he's... Has a shaky start. Very shaky. The first year, like, is he going to be able to fill? They didn't think they could fill Jack Parr's shoes. At that time, late night wasn't this. It was very casual. It was very conversational. It was much more like maybe like a, a cocktail party as opposed to the show. We're doing this show. This is Johnny Carson on the very night he took over as host of The Tonight Show. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. But uh, an emotional, uh, this is kind of an emotional thing for me because I've known about this show for a long time. And the newspapers and the magazines, and I've probably been interviewed 150 times in the last nine months since I've known about this. As I say, you work up to it. We come over here this afternoon. We meet the guests that are on the show. And you get kind of charged up. I don't mean to be maudlin about it. But I know that tonight a lot of people, a lot of my friends are watching all over the country. And I only have one feeling as I, I stand here knowing that so many people are watching. I want my man there. <laughs> Which leads us to Thursday, December 6th, 1973. Well, it was a crazy night. Freddie Prinze went on The Tonight Show. Was it common for a 19-year-old to do stand-up on The Tonight Show? It was very uncommon. As a rule, it takes years for comedians on stage to develop their own personal rhythm, their point of view, some people call it their voice, even their confidence. So this was rare. A few years ago, there was a lot of people talking about Pete Davidson. Yes. 19, joining the cast of Saturday Night Live. Exactly. So it's a similar So it does of- happen. It does. Sometimes right out of the gate, people have this persona. Certainly, Eddie Murphy was 19 yeah, when he got cast same, on us. Yeah. So it's a, it's a rare thing when it happens, but it, it does. I don't... I don't think anyone's been cast at 16. No. Yet. <laughs> but we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. We'll see what happens. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm from New York, and uh, it's a weird town because it's a melting pot. I come from two backgrounds, Hungarian and Puerto Rican. Baja! I'm a Hungarian. <laughs> it's like a very heavy title because I could never figure out how my parents met, a gypsy and a Puerto Rican. I asked my mother. She said they're on the subway trying to pick each other's pocket. <laughs> my mother 
you know, my mom always talks about the wedding. Oh, the wedding was beautiful. You should have been there. I was. It's rare to be that young and be on The Tonight Show. Yes. It's rare to be called over to the couch after your performance. Having that great a set. Is it's your... rare to stay through a commercial break. Yes. And it's rare to stay through another, another commercial, commercial break and bump the next guest. That all happened. Ushering in a new wave of stand-up and cementing Johnny Carson and The Tonight Show as the sort right. of kingmaker of stand-up. No question. Freddie Prince's performance... Carson's declaration and the fact that a year prior, The Tonight Show had moved to Los Angeles. Suddenly, L.A. became the mecca. Based on one show, the great migration was on. Like David Letterman came out and Leno, who was Boston-based, he moved out to Los Angeles. And then you can name all these comedians. Kevin Pollack, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Ellen DeGeneres. They all moved out here. They all moved to California to get on The Tonight. That became... The golden ticket to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory of fame. I don't know how to say it. And there was another young comedian in 1973 that got his big break on Late Night, but not from Johnny. Your goal is always to be on the Johnny Carson show. There's nothing more important, nothing more relevant, nothing more. The Johnny Carson people just were like, please, stop it. Don't bother us. We got a lot of things happening, a lot of things going on. And you know what? Jimmy Walker is not one. This is Jimmy Walker doing an interview with the Television Academy. At that time, there was a lot of TV shows. Jack Parr, Dick Cavett, David Frost, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Dinah Shore. Mm -hmm. There was a ton of shows. Jack Parr was back on television doing a show for ABC up against The Tonight Show. So I went out there, and the, before I did the show, it's just people right. running around, doing mm -hmm. whatever, whatever. And in that haze, Jack Parr comes over. And it's just like, just the calm in the storm. And he says, hey, everybody tells me you're funny. You just go out, relax, don't worry about it. And I'm going to bring you on and give you a big intro. And you just go, and these people laugh. You will do just fine. So... He brings me on with this great intro. And I walk and I said, hey, I'm from the ghetto, which got like a little titter. He says, I'm here on the exchange program. Big laugh. He says, you could imagine what they sent up there. Huge laugh. Then I just took off, man. It was like unbelievable. And so I did the show and went to the improv. We watched it at the improv. It was one of those things where everybody was so happy. It was like, yeah, man, you know, that kind of thing like that, you know. And things started changing a little bit because of that one shot. It was that kind of deal like that. Things changed. Things changed dramatically. In less than one year, Jimmy Walker became the breakout star of the show Good Times. lucky person you got the number right because you are talking to kid a dynamite so what happened in 1975 in the fall of 1975 lauren michaels who was this writer for, uh from canada used to be part of a comedy team uh, 
worked on Laugh-In, and then had worked on a couple very important Lily Tomlin specials for television. He won, if I'm not mistaken, won Emmy Awards for. One of them had Richard Pryor on. When they decide, like, let's do something edgy late night in the vein of, like, what the Smothers Brothers were trying to do, he created this sketch show called Saturday Night Live. I think it was actually called NBC Saturday Night. Yeah, at first. There's at, another show called Saturday Right. Night. There was a Howard Cosell show. So uh, what, do you remember the, the first time you discovered Saturday Night Live? I believe I do. Uh, when was it? It was the night before it debuted. I was up late. I'm watching Tom Snyder on a show. It's called, do you remember we talked about the Today Show? Yeah. And that the Tonight Show this is called the Tomorrow Show. Did uh, it's after the Tonight is this, Show? Is this is Weaver's naming again? No, I don't know if Pat Weaver had anything to do with it. But anyway, I'm watching it because Jerry Lewis is on, and this is the time of his career when he is on painkillers due to a back injury, so he's very volatile. And I kind of remember him taking out a still camera and taking pictures of Tom Snyder during the interview. Great was, talk show guest, <laughs> incredible. And then. At the end, before they say, they say, okay, good night, Jerry. And then. Before we say goodbye again, my thanks to Jerry Lewis for sitting still for an extended interview on this program. And as I said at the outset of our broadcast uh, tonight, uh, beginning on October the 11th, Saturday night, we'll open up a whole new live venture from New York City, from Studio 8H here at Rockefeller Center. And we just happen to have the producer of the program, Mr. Lauren Michaels, with us, the producer of Saturday Night, and members of his company, and let's spend a couple of minutes talking about your show. Lauren, I'd like to meet your gang. Well, but just before we do that, I just want to say that I thought Jerry was wonderful as well. And uh, so they had the whole cast, uh, you know, Chevy and Belushi and Jane and all of that, just sitting around at Lauren, a young, Lauren, vital Lauren Michaels, being interviewed by Tom Snyder, and that's the first time I really... Saw the cast. I think I had heard some stuff about it. And they're like, we're doing a live show to the East Coast, of course, because I was always like, well, is it going to be on at 830? So uh, that was the first time I heard about Saturday Night Live and saw the cast members together. Well, it all starts on the 11th of October, and I wish you all well and have a lot of fun, and the audience will too, and uh, welcome to Rockefeller Center and doing live television for me. Thank you. I think it's great. Thanks, Thanks We will continue and tell you about Monday night's effort at 1 o'clock in the morning. But I think the important thing to remember and why it's important was that they used, again, this is the history of stand-up, stand-ups to host this sketch show. Of the first seven hosts, four of them were stand-ups. Lily Tomlin, Richard Pryor, Robert Klein, George Carlin. And, too, those first shows, especially the Carlin one, it's not, when you think about the, the yeah, host have you seen today, it? yeah. Tell me what you were. You, it's it's mu it feels almost much more like a stand-up show that throws to some sketches mm -hmm. rather than today. It's a sketch show that has you know one monologue that's stand-up-ish. Right? Did Carlin come out and do multiple monologues? Yeah, it wasn't. I it wasn't it like he does a series of jokes and they go to some sketches and they come back and then they come and back he's doing okay. some more jokes and then some sketches. I got it. Ladies and gentlemen. SNL is very important, not only because it showcases stand-ups, but it ushers in a new, edgier comedy aesthetic. Talking about a live show. Wow. Nice to see you. Welcome, and thanks for joining us live. I'm kind of glad that we're on at night so that we're not competing with all the football and baseball games. 
And this is the time of year when there's both, you know? Football's kind of nice. They changed it a little bit. They moved the hash marks in. Guys found them and smoked them anyway. <laughs> I was the first host of Saturday Night Live. The original idea was to have rotating hosts, but they wanted Richard Pryor and he didn't want to do that. And I think they wanted Lily Tomlin and there were problems. So they asked me to be the first host. And I, I knew that I was stepping a little out of my world because it was sketch comedy. And I never liked being part of the group. I never liked being part of the company or being, I mean, I liked my solo spot. You bring your mouth, you bring your mind, there's a microphone there, you travel light, you just make it up and you, you write it and you put it out there. And so even though Saturday Night Live is primarily a sketch show, it wouldn't be the same without stand-up comedians, whether writers, performers, or guest hosts. And there was one stand-up whose talents were a perfect fit for SNL. His name is Steve Martin. Well, Steve Martin is this, again, he was this, in the 60s, he was this writer on the Smothers Brothers show, and he had been on The Tonight Show a few times and not broken out on The Tonight Show, but was just kind of feeling his way through it. Carson liked him. And really what propelled him to stratospheric level of comedy, maybe not since, since Milton Berle in 1948, was when over the course of two seasons, he guest hosted five times. That's, that's, is that like, that, that has to be a record. I, I don't know. I am not a statistician for SNL. <laughs> I don't do deep dive analytics, but it was a lot. And Lorne Michaels loved him. He was a new kind of stand-up comedian, not George Carlin in a T-shirt and long hair. He was in a white suit, and it was very conceptual what he was doing. He was experimenting with the concept of making fun of stand-up. Yeah. Already, yeah. yeah. Hey, I don't like to um, gear my material to the audience, but um, I'd like to make an exception because I was told uh, that there is a convention of plumbers in San Francisco this week, and I understand about 30 of them came down to the show tonight. So before I came out, I worked up a joke, especially for the plumbers. And uh, now those of you who aren't plumbers probably won't get this and won't think it's funny, but I think those of you who are plumbers will really enjoy this. And uh, so if you're not a plumber, please just bear with me for a while and just kind of uh, you know hold off on this, but I would like to do this for the plumbers. So here we go. This lawn supervisor was out on a sprinkler maintenance job. <laughs> And he started working on a Finlay sprinkler head with a Langstrom 7-inch gangly wrench. Well, just then a little apprentice leaned over and said, uh, you can't work on a Finlay sprinkler head with a Langstrom 7-inch wrench. <laughs> well, this infuriated the supervisor, so he went and got volume 14 of the Kinsley Manual. And he reads to him and says, the Langstrom 7-inch wrench can be used with a Finlay sprocket. Just then, the little apprentice leaned over and says, it says sprocket, not socket. <laughs> Those plumbers supposed to be here this show, or was that? And a lot of the older comedians didn't get it. Yeah. And I know Steve Martin's dad didn't get it, was embarrassed. And that's the thing that propelled him. And then he had these two albums. The first one's called Let's Get Small, where he's crazy glasses on. And his arrow, his, his and then arrow through the... Right, wild and crazy guy. And this guy became like the biggest stand-up in the country. Started playing big theaters and arenas. A lot of people think he's the first rock star. Yeah. 
comedian. And now, let's repeat the non-conformist oath. I promise to be different. I promise to be unique. I promise not to repeat things other people say. Good. Although no stand-up comedians were part of the regular cast for SNL, four of the first seven hosts were stand-up comedians. Everyone's worried about Richard Pryor, because Richard Pryor, at this point, uh, is winning Grammy Award after Grammy Awards. These were the names of the three albums, slightly edited. One, that N-word's crazy. Two, is it something I said? I don't, that's the actual. And three, bicentennial N-word. So he goes on SNL, and the censors are really worried. They're like, what is this guy going to say? Look at the name of his albums. This is going to be tough. So there's a guy with a button, with his finger over button, ready to censor Richard Pryor. And this is where HBO enters the comedy scene. You know, I would, mine was the first concert televised. It was at Bryn Mawr College. And this is comedian Robert Klein revisiting the very first HBO comedy special. So let's start at the beginning. Right back to December 31st, 1975. If you've ever seen a stand-up special on Netflix or Showtime or Comedy Central, this is where it all started. Uh, the talk shows are okay, you know, but I, you know, I do the Tonight Show. I sit, come in, I have to be funny in a hurry. It gets a little time. Six minutes and boom, 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 boom. Gonna be funny in a hurry. Then I sit down on the panel. Well, Johnny, we went back to L.A. Then we came home to New York. And boom, move over one chair. <laughs> HBO became the place where comedians could have uncensored airtime. You can say this is mature, we're grown up. You can say any shit. <laughs> what a catharsis, anyway. HBO saved me. Here's George Carlin again. I had four gold records in the early 70s, and you can't be the new hot guy in town forever. Keep in mind, in 1972, George Carlin was arrested in Milwaukee for using profanity in his set. And so HBO became a perfect place for George Carlin to perform his stand-up. He would do a new hour for HBO every two years or so. And I was on my way. I've now done 13 of them. And number 14 is coming. In 1976, HBO also launched another hugely influential stand-up program called Freddie Prince and Friends. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Recorded live at the Hollywood Improv, Prince presented five undiscovered comedians, including uh, then 26-year-old Jay Leno. To welcome the very marvelous talents of Mr. Freddie Prince, ladies and gentlemen. Not only were the comedians influential, but the format was as well. An evening of young comedians introduced by an established act became a style that was duplicated on television ever since. A great example of this is the Young Comedian Special and Deaf Comedy Jam. Get ready to laugh with today's hottest young black comics on an all-new Russell Simmons Deaf Comedy Jam, next on HBO. Viewer discretion advised. I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. I'm going to tell you something straight off the motherfucking press. But I love sex. I love it. Can't do shit no more. And I'm blessed. <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm big boned. I'm heavy structure. I'm hung low. If I pull my shit out, this whole room get dark. Kick it! You don't understand. I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. For those of you that don't know, that's Bernie Mac performing on HBO's Deaf Comedy Jam. And this is just one more example of how a breakout performance can take a stand-up comedian to the next level. But a performance like this, and so many to follow, wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for the trailblazing efforts of a comedian that many consider to be the best stand-up ever. His name is Richard Pryor. Some white dudes you cut in front of don't play that shit though, right? You cut in front of them, all right, cut the shit. Just cut the fucking crap. Hola. <laughs> I love when white dudes get mad and cuss, Because right? y'all some funny motherfuckers when you cuss. Right? They be saying shit like, yeah, come on, peckerhead. I, I, it's even hard to describe it. It's just, it was just a, a level of comedic brilliance that has not been matched since. That's next week on The History of Stand-Up. Thanks so much for listening. Before we go, wanted to also remind you that we're doing a very special live version of the History of Stand-Up, November 18th, 2018, at Dynasty Typewriter at the Hayworth in Los Angeles. If you'd like more information, be sure to check out thehistoryofstandup.com. We'll also be posting about it on social media, etc. Tickets are only $15, but if you use the promo code N1, that's I-N-O-N-E, you can save $5 when you check out. We hope to see you there. The History of Stand-Up is hosted, written, and produced by Wayne Fetterman and me, Andrew Steven. The show is also produced by Jeff Umbro and Chris Boniello of The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. Some of the music in this episode is by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more about this show, episodes, and extras at thehistoryofstandup.com, at histofstandup on Twitter, or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this show, please tell a friend and leave a review. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.